0: Welcome to The Public Morality. Candidate Joe Biden offered the prospects of a democracy summit and international gathering of Democratic leaders. But when January 6th occurred, and suddenly it seemed for many this was not the right time for a democracy summit, at least not one that the United States should be hosting. Global footage of rioters violently invading the Capitol in what appeared to be a reenactment of Shay's Rebellion or Storming the Bastille did not appear to be an example of popular sovereignty at its finest. January 6th seemingly put an end to the prospects of the United States hosting a democracy summit. But my guest, Stuart Patrick, in a recent article for World Politics Review, holds a contrarian perspective. He argues the events of January 6th demonstrated democracy summit is needed now more than ever. Stuart is the James H. Binger Senior Fellow in Global Governance and Director of the International Institutions and Global Governance Program at the Council on Foreign Relations. Stuart Patrick, welcome to The Public Morality.
1: Thank you so much, Byron. Great to be here. Mm -hmm.
0: When I hear the prospects of a democracy summit... My first question is: What are we talking about? How was democracy defined, and is that merely purple ink-stained fingers? I mean, what came to your mind when, when you first heard President-elect—I mean, I mean—Candidate I mean, Biden talk about a democracy summit?
1: Yeah, that's a fair question, uh, Byron. Um, and I think in a lot of people's mind, when they think of democracy, that's what they—they uh, they thought. Certainly, when we were in—you um, know—trying to, the United States trying to bring democracy to Iraq, that was—that was really the symbol. But it's a lot more than that. I mean, the way I think of democracy is, um, I mean, it's obviously a a system of representative government, which is based on this fundamental principle that, you know, political legitimacy or political authority derives its legitimacy um, from the consent of the governed. Now, I mean, when when you think about it, there's obviously lots of different democracies around the world, right? We have parliamentary democracies like in the United Kingdom. Uh, We have uh, presidential democracies, and we even have, you know, and obviously there are constitutional monarchies. But all democracies basically have, I think, some fundamental characteristics. Um, One, of course, is free and fair elections, but not only elections, but there's a prospect that you're actually going to get a peaceful transfer of power from one one regime to another. You have guarantees of equality under the law. You have some protections of fundamental political rights, and particularly civil and political rights, like those that are in. um, You know, the Bill of Rights, like freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, right to trial by jury. You've also got normally um, in a successful democracy some constraints on the tyranny of the majority in the forms of checks and balances. And you've got separation of powers, particularly an independent judiciary, right, so that like an executive or a legislature couldn't run amok. And then finally, the general principle is – you have the primacy of the rule of law over the rule of man or the rule of men or women. And that's a really important principle, that nobody is above the law. Hmm.
0: Now, if there were to be a democracy summit fostered by President Biden, uh, would that include Argentina, Argentina, uh, Colombia, and, and Brazil, which, my words, um, right now are democracies in name only?
1: Yeah, you know... <laughs> it probably it, it it might well include those. Um, they they might be on the invitation list. Um, some people have suggested that if uh, President Biden were to do this, that there might be a steering group that you know determines some, if not qualifications at least. You know, requires some commitment, some stated commitment to general principles to be able to be there. All of them, I think, would be considered democracies, given the fact that they've had, you know, in, in recent years, you know, peaceful transfers of power from from one uh, group to another. Um, but I think particularly in the case of Brazil, you would have to think of these as um, deeply flawed a deeply flawed democracy, because it's, you know, it has a populist, really author- authoritarian government um, that's moved more to the right under Jair Bolsonaro. Um, all three of those countries, that's Argentina, Colombia, and Brazil, they all have pretty high levels of corruption, um, and at least a couple of them, Brazil, uh, but particularly Colombia, have dealt with issues of impunity, um, including in Colombia's case for um, for sort of the long, you know, crimes committed during the long civil war in that country.
0: You actually use the term flawed Um, Democracy um, and the Economist uh, Democracy Index um, rated all of those, uh, the aforementioned, as flawed democracies. But the United States is also uh, included in that flawed democracy uh, category. And given that rating, is the United States the proper nation to host a democracy summit?
1: You know that is a question that a ton of people are answering um you know there's no question that the credibility of the u.s to host such a summit um has really been weakened um i mean i i would argue that it's stronger after january 20th i think the the united states kind of had a near-death experience there um because it was unclear to me um whether or not Democracy would have survived in its in in the form that we've um, we've seen it uh, if Donald Trump had had a second term. Given the fact that he was uh, hollowing out a lot of the institutions that are at the basis of American democracy, um, you know. But and I don't think we're out of the woods. Um, you know, the sheen is really off American exceptionalism, this notion that um, which which most Americans have have believed in. The United States has this sort of special role. Um, you know, by providence to sort of, you know, uh, lead the world. And it's but it's off uh, both in the United States, at least among Democrats who are more skeptical of that view. And it's off amongst foreign observers as well. Um, You know, before Donald Trump, the major debate about U.S. and democracy was, well, should we be a beacon for democracy, right? Just do our own thing and everybody else could sort of look up to us. Or should we be a crusader for it? And I think today the big question is, can we do either of those things? Um, You know, Well before the insurrection on January 6th, um, the Trump years, in my view at least, had exposed a lot of the weaknesses of American democracy. um, And also how deeply dependent American democracy is on a bunch of unspoken norms of presidential conduct, which which, uh, the president violated. Now, in terms of whether or not the United States can still hold this thing, you know, I think whether or not we can host this summit depends a lot on how we frame it. Um, I think if President Biden frames it as "Hey, we're not here to hector or lecture, but we're here to listen and learn," and um, you know, we recognize that we live in a glass house, the glassiest of glass houses. Um, you know, I, and, and that's kind of the message that that actually President Biden delivered um, uh, in his uh, first foreign policy speech at the State Department. You know, if he comes from a position of humility. Um, that we're all vulnerable and we need to look at these sources of vulnerability and, and we're all trying to get to a more perfect union. I think he can bring this Democracy Summit off, but it is a it is an exercise that's pretty fraught with danger, I think, for the president.
0: I'm going to come back to that, but I want to stay with this, this notion of democracy and, and, and specifically the Economist Index, because in um, thinking about the work that you do um, in that index, only 13% were rated as full democracies. 32% were flawed democracies. 22% were hybrid regimes, uh, which I think, which I think is authoritarian by another name. And then 32% were authoritarian. So, does this 13% full democracy, given the work that you do around the world, is that concerning to you in terms of the trajectory?
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm not, I, I don't know that I would have um, figures that are quite as extreme as uh, The Economist, but I, I mean, I'm not really sure about the methodology that they used. You know, I, I tend to reference um, uh, ratings from an organization called Freedom House, which is basically a global watchdog. Uh, and every year they publish something called Freedom in the World, um, you know, assigning to 190 odd nations uh, basically to one of three categories free partly free or not free, and um, in the most recent one from 2020, the percentage of free countries was about a little more than 42%, uh, which still exceeded those that were deemed partly free, which is about 32%, and not free, 25%. So it's a plurality, right, that we're still free. But I have to say the trend um, to to get to your question is not moving in freedom's direction. Um, this, according to Freedom House, last year was the fourteenth straight year that um, democracy had receded around the world. And, you know, political rights and civil liberties were deteriorating in about twice as many countries as they were improving. Um, and, and in addition, Freedom House called attention to now this was during the Trump administration, but huge deteriorations in you know two of the world's biggest democracies. Certainly, the world's biggest democracy uh, in the case of India, but then also in the United States as well under Donald Trump. So there's no question. Um, that democracy is on the ropes. And, and I just just I should probably give you a little historic context sure. here, too. That is a huge like if I might yep, that is a huge far cry from like the early Cold War. You know, you might remember that when uh, Bill Clinton was in the White House. You know, the the big theme of the national security strategy that that they came out with, um, I think in 1994, was basically, you know, trying to promote the enlargement and expansion of the world's community of market democracies, and it was it was seen as inevitable that this was going to occur. You know, flash forward ten years, and you got George W. Bush. His entire thing, you know, and this might have been hubris, was was hey, we've got to promote. Um, you know, the non-negotiable demands of human dignity worldwide. Um, unfortunately, some of the nation-building exercises um, in the global war on terrorism uh, sort of gave, some, and regime change gave democracy promotion a bad name there. Um, and I think it really cratered, though, under um, under uh, the Trump administration.
0: Hmm. Uh, you, you touched on it earlier, but I'd like to come back to it. You talked about American exceptionalism and um, uh Talk about what it is. But as as I recall reading uh, Democracy in America by de Tocqueville, um, he said America was exceptional, but not for the reasons you just defined. It actually was it was a slap. So what is American exceptionalism and how is it viewed on the international stage?
1: Yeah, American exceptionalism um, is the view that um, that the United States, by virtue of the founding principles, um, its founding principles that are in the Declaration and then the Constitution of the United States, by virtue of those, it has sort of a special role um, to play and a special status in the world. Now, how, internet, how American exceptionalism is applied has varied greatly for some folks it's meant uh, across uh, across u.s history for some folks it's meant hey you know we have this unique experiment that is um you know um in, in fact superior to the way a lot of other countries organize themselves and so basically but but it's in danger of uh, and so sometimes american exceptionalism is is used to justify isolation from an alien world that might otherwise corrupt it so you, know, you, you see exceptionalism you invoke that way at other times, like in the time of Woodrow Wilson, you know, who wanted to make the world safe for democracy, um, it, the idea was, "Hey, we got to be this crusader nation that goes out there and uh, and transforms the world into our image." So it's basically a, a, a sense that the United States has a special destiny among countries. But the question is, how do we actually um, how do how do we actually translate that? Of course, these days, a lot of people are asking how special the United States is. Uh, Don't we still have a lot of the same problems a lot of other countries do? Well,
0: when you mention that, uh, I think if we're going to be fair historically, I mean, wouldn't we say that this whole notion of of, of democracy in the United States has been flawed? I'm not saying that in in the economist sense, but we've struggled with the inclusivity of the preamble, we the people, and really sort of having tension with who exactly comprises the we and that's sort of been an ongoing struggle for us as a country has it not
1: oh yeah i mean you know the united states has been um uh, you know a a democracy since from the get-go in a lot of ways um you know when you when you begin a republic with the institution of slavery you know when we when we begin with african americans being a fraction of quote-unquote human beings in the constitution you know you have a flawed democracy from the get go um and then you get into you know the failures of the reconstruction era after the civil war, Jim Crow laws, civil rights struggle the auto- ongoing battle of against voter suppression, you know, and this is to say nothing of you know the struggle for women's suffrage for gender equality, recent problems with anti immigrant sentiment you know islamophobia, et cetera you know this struggle is ongoing um the way i mean the the sort of more optimistic way of looking at it is that. You know, since our founding, we have been forever struggling to improve and expand our democracy. And that at least um, the Constitution provides certain principles and our founding, other founding documents provide certain principles that allow for that expansion. And so that, you know, there's a sense of progressivism that goes along with that. But there's no question that, you know, (laughs) the last few years have uh, have tried our optimism and our patience with uh, the notion that things are going in a progressive direction and, um, and you know, shows how much uh, still needs to be fought for.
0: I'm speaking with Stuart Patrick about the Biden administration's proposed International Democracy Summit. Patrick is a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, Stuart, uh, gonna, let's, let's, let's drill down on your piece from the uh, World Politics Review. You, uh, you take a somewhat contrarian perspective, in the sense that for, for a number of people, January 6th became a reason not to hold um, the uh, a, a proposed democracy summit. Um, you see it a different way. Explain.
1: Yeah, you know, I, a lot of people said, look, <laughs> we are the last people that should be holding a, a summit for democracy when, you know, the capital was just ransacked and, you know, people were— you know, the, the insurrectionists were, you know, roaming the halls of Congress, you know, trying to string up Nancy Pelosi, kill uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and hang Michael Mike Pence, the vice president, you know, on what on what possible grounds could the United States have told to the Democracy Summit? You know, I guess what I mean is that, you know, there's I think that. This summit could work if, if it's really, depending how it's framed. I mean, it really has to be framed from a position of humility. Um, I think that there's merit in having a gathering of democracies that both acknowledges our own deep flaws as a democracy, the fact that we're a work in progress, while still declaring, along with our democratic partners, look, democracy is a universal aspiration, universal relevance. Um, you know, it's not something that's culturally relative any more than fundamental human rights are. Um, Again, I think you have to frame it as an effort to protect and improve the resilience of democracies um, from threats that are are as much sort of internal. I mean, they're from within as much as they are from without. And, you know, those threats include, you know, the spread of corruption, the erosion of fundamental human rights and, you know, difficulties um, of inclusion, particularly of minority communities, you know, rampant misinformation. Uh, which is not just a, a, a factor of sort of external interference, of course, but it's also the dilemmas of um, of digital democracy, right? When you have this incredibly fragmented information environment, and um, nobody agrees—or at least people do not—fund big portions of the country do not have the same agreement on what truth is anymore. I think that you know those are general problems um, that confront the entire democratic world, and you know it may be time to sort of circle the wagons amongst democracies and think about how we can collectively learn from each other about the best ways of battling those issues.
0: Mm. You also wrote in that piece that uh, a democracy summer would come at a time when the United States has frittered away its historical standing as a leader uh, in the democratic world. Um, Did that begin four years ago, or was that something that's been ongoing in your view?
1: Uh, It's been ongoing, but it certainly got uh, worse over the last four years during the Trump administration. Uh, You know, it's obvious that the United States has uh, always been selective um, in its promotion of democracy and human rights, as well as its practice at home. Um, But the selectivity, I think, reached its apogee under the Trump years, um, which saw an incredibly cynical, let's just focus on foreign policy, Um, you know. Um, I mentioned that, you know, democracy promotion had to some degree been given a bad name under um the sort of nation building exercises, but I think that Donald Trump was really the true aberration. Um because since nineteen forty five, um, you know, there's been something like before him, I guess there was since FDR there have been thirteen administrations. Uh, that have given rhetorical and uh, and often practical support to this notion that that democracy is is the way that the world that uh, countries should be governed and that human rights should be defended. Um, but Trump presided over uh, a really cynical foreign policy. I mean, he took, told Bob Woodward, uh, for instance, that you know it's it he says it's funny. You know, the the tougher and meaner uh, the rulers of other countries are, the one, the more I the more I sort of respect them and the more I I, I feel close and affinity to them. And the list of autocrats and strongmen that um, Donald Trump cozied up to is really extraordinary. I mean, a short list would include, you know, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, uh, Mr. Sisi in Egypt, um, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan in Turkey, Kim Jong-un in um, in North Korea, and, you know, a, sort of a strongman in a democracy or quasi-democracy, uh, Jair Bolsonaro in um, Brazil. in Brazil so you know you really have a uh, you really have somebody who and then you know by the same token called um you know democratic leaders like um Angela Merkel of um of Germany or um um Emmanuel Macron of France you know considered them weak uh, and and called and called them out as such so it's really quite remarkable um the degree to which um we elected a president who really had such uh, authoritarian tendencies
0: you, you know, when I was listening to your answer, I was just thinking, uh, it reminded me when I uh, visited the Civil Rights Museum in um, Birmingham. And at, at near the end of the exhibit, there was a number of uh, newspapers around the world um, that had front page uh, stories about the police dogs and fire hoses. And some of those were the Pravda, uh, China. Uh, uh, I mean, just some of the real authoritarian places. And so they sort of gloated at, at the notion that America is not this shining city on the hill. And I'm wondering, did we have that same... Was that the same impact um, vis-a-vis January 6th?
1: Yeah, very much so, actually. You saw... Um a lot of uh, adversarial regimes making hay, you know, some some trolling by the Venezuelan government, you know, basically, you know, almost suggesting that maybe, you know, we needed a little democracy assistance in our country and, and, you know, some sort of, you know, sort of um, expressions of sympathy that we hope you know by the chinese and others that they hope we get our you know governing house in order that sort of thing <laughs> the iranians as well so absolutely um and and just with reference to what you say about um the um the you know um the sort of police dogs um set loose on um on on protesters in the 1950s it, it was actually a serious issue in terms of u.s credibility because the united states obviously was engaged in a um in uh, Cold War um, conflict and uh, and rivalry with with, uh, with the Soviet Union and its and its, um, and its uh, other other members of the the communist bloc, and there was no question that U.S. officials uh, running foreign policy at the time thought that this was a major vulnerability on the part of the United States. Um, that we that that you know how could we on the one hand, um, say that we stood for universal human rights and yet obviously not extending them to our own population, particularly as, you know, a lot of, you know, brown-skinned people, frankly, around the world were trying to become independent from their colonial masters. Um, and, um, and so it was a huge problem. The other issue though, at this, which remains the case today, um, and I should just say that's quite relevant for now too, right? You know, mm-hmm. the fact that, you know, the Black Lives Matter, um, um, movement has shown structural racism and inequalities in the United States certainly undermines, uh, you know, sort of like raise the question of whether or not we have a leg to stand on internationally. The other issue at the same time in the 1950s was that, uh, at the beginning of the 1950s, was that the United States remains really, really uh, reluctant, um, partly because of the na- nature of Senate ratification, to actually ratify um, U.S. U.N. human rights treaties. And that was true in the 1950s and it remains true today. And so it's easy to accuse the United States of hypocrisy because, you know, even sometimes when we've promoted a human rights treaty, we don't end up ratifying it um, globally uh, because we have, partly because of the hurdles, as I said, of Senate ratification. But both of those things uh, were true in the 1950s and are true today.
0: Well, well, one of the things uh, you mentioned earlier Uh, That if President Biden uh, entered into a democracy summit uh, with humility, um, which makes sense to me, uh, I wonder... Um, Just given our politics and the fractured nature of our politics and and sort of tying this to the Cold War, I mean, the Cold War sort of bound us. It was sort of like that was the wall. You couldn't cross that wall. I mean, that was sort of bound us. Um, We're not bound that way anymore, as evidenced by former President Obama's apology tour, which he never apologized. But but do you worry that if Biden were to show some contrition, that it gets transmuted into another apology tour?
1: Yeah, exactly. So that, you know, when, you know, um, I think absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, as, as you mentioned, you know, when um, when, um, you know, President Obama was honest about some, uh, you know, American conduct in, in sort of previous years and decades abroad, um, you know, it, it was immediately, you know, you know, tarred, uh, particularly by his Republican enemies as being as somehow un-American. And, um, you know, I think there's a senior serious danger here um, that if President Biden were to have convene this democracy so, or summit for democracy and sort of say, hey, the United States is a fragile democracy, too, that that could be a real problem, uh, particularly as long as the Republican Party remains, you know, basically captive to, you know, a nationalist, um, nativist and conspiracy minded base, you know, that has no trouble, frankly, in my view, flirting with fascism. Um, I think that... Um, Republican Party right now is deeply sensitive to basically any examination of some of the shortcomings in the history of the United States. Um, and I think that, you know, you saw this towards the end of the Trump administration, right? You, you heard of this 1776 commission, right? This this sort of like you know, effort to kind of whitewash history um, and suggest that, you know, the United States is sort of a flawless creature, right? Um, And I think that the fact that, you know, when you have one one party that has no interest in turning, you know, a critical eye or even being reflective of some of the injustices and imperfections that have existed in the United States and that we've, you know, been struggling with over the course of our history, you got a problem. um, Because you end up with accusations like, why do you hate America, right? Right. Right. so, so I would see, you know, one of the problems with this is, is it could become a major political football, right? I mean, ideally, you'd want to make any summit for democracy, you know, uh, have some, you know, reasonable, constructive internationalist Republicans there. You know, unfortunately, John McCain is no longer with us. Maybe you could get Mitt Romney, but who else is going to be there to give it that kind of a flavor?
0: Mm. You know, when you, when you mentioned 1776, I, I because uh, I also teach a, 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 a civics course, and um we were talking just that very thing, and it seemed to me that the, the more apt historical comparison was not 1776, but 18, but 1886 to 87. That being Shay's Rebellion, that um, was that was more of a Shay's Rebellion moment, which which the, which scared the bejesus out of the founders more so than a 1776 moment.
1: Wait, wait. Yeah, that's a good point. That's actually that's a that's a really good point uh, in terms of this particular episode. Uh-huh.
0: Not long ago. Uh, we had uh, UVA Professor Barbara Perion talking about uh, President George H. w. Bush, and one of the things that she brought up was that president President Bush, because of his long tenure, had the ability to get on the phone and talk with foreign leaders. And even when it wasn't an ask, in your view, I'm not saying he hasn't, but would you like to see President Biden doing something, doing something very similar with foreign leaders before he rolls out a democracy summit?
1: Oh, yeah, very much so. Um, on Wednesday, um, the president um, met with, um, I guess, sorry, Thursday, um, the president gave his first uh, foreign policy speech at the State Department. And, you know, he mentioned the number of world leaders that he has been talking to. And I'm sure that that has probably come up um, in those conversations. You know, the uh, the European Union, um, at least um, at the Brussels level, has suggested that it would be in favor of this summit and, um, and wants to take part. Uh, and I think other countries uh, will be interested i i think that it's really important that this not be simply a made in the usa exercise um because again that gets you back to the image of you know the united states is you know lecturing um and wagging a finger at the rest of the world um so i think that um, what some people have suggested is that there should be some kind of a steering committee that helps you know iron out the details of this um you know deals with some of the serious problems like who do you invite right and what happened you know where do you where do you where do you cut the guest list off um and so there could be some sort of a steering committee ideally you would for this democracy summit ideally you'd have um both established democracies but then also um from that from sort of the wealthy world but then you'd also have some from the developing world that could help you um you know, bring give sort of a, a an international sheen to this, um, and suggest buy-in from countries other than just the United States.
0: You talked earlier about um, sort of the historical struggle that that the United States has had in terms of extending democracy to people of color, to women, etc. And I'm wondering, is there any actual legislative work we need to do prior to such a summit, in your view? Because Uh, post the election of Joe Biden, you've had – I could be wrong about my numbers here, but you've had, what, roughly 28 states, uh, state legislatures sort of – pull back on, try to pull back on the ability to do mail-in voting, which is, again, attacking uh, the franchise to make voting uh, even more onerous for people. Uh, Is there anything that we, I don't know if we can do anything, but should we be looking in that, or should we just accept that as part of our flaws as a flawed democracy?
1: Well, you know, I I think that um, we should be doing uh, everything in our power to try to um, you know, influence state legislators that are attempting to do things like that and, uh, in addition to trying to you know use, say, their control of uh, in the majority to try to do even more gerrymandering and efforts at voter suppression. You know, I, I think that those steps send a terrible message, right? They, they reinforce the impression that the United States, you know is, Deeply divided, um, and that one of its two parties is basically anti um, anti democratic and with small D democratic. You know the dilemma. Um, the dilemma for President Biden. You know when he, if he holds his democracy summit is going to be. You know he's got a. You know he's probably going to have to go beyond saying things like, "Hey, the United States is a flawed democracy, or it's just a work in progress." You know, but explicitly mention some of these actions being used to curtail the franchise. I think that. Um, citizen engagement and involvement, the kind of mobilization um, that you saw from, obviously most famously uh, from Stacey Abrams in in Georgia, you know, efforts to try to overturn some of these more egregious steps by uh, by cor- by the courts, I think are going to be um, very very important. Um, I think that you know ultimately. It's actually going to take, um, you know, getting some of these folks who are trying to engage in these anti-democratic behaviors uh, out of office. I have some hopes that the demographic changes in the United States, uh, they're ongoing, uh, will uh, hasten that, although one can't be uh, too um, secure or confident about the direction that, you know, new new voters will take.
0: Mm. Uh, you, you sort of alluded to this earlier, but American democracy— At its core, is is really held together by an idea that was articulated in the Declaration of Independence, and that idea has withstood a a, a civil war, a Great Depression, a civil rights movement, the Cold War. So, when you look at where America is today, given that it's more than three hundred million people plus, uh, it's much easier to say what it means to be French or what it means to be German, um, given that the that divergent view. I mean, can we sustain ourselves as a democracy?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's certainly um, time is going to tell about that. I tend to be optimistic. I mean, the history of the United States is of, um, in many ways, but one, one of one of the aspects of its history is of integrating you know diverse peoples into sort of one um, American you know nation. But you need to put your finger on the on something, which is that you know we're Whereas, you know, at, at its best, the United States, um, the good thing about the United States is that it's not, hasn't been a people nation, right? It hasn't been one based on, you know, simple or, or basically on ethnicity. You know, one thinks about the Germans or the Japanese, for instance, but it's been less of a people nation in that regard than a, um than an idea nation, right, that, that, as you say, we you know, we've been based on this 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 shared conception of political values. And, that, that, and so there's some myth in that, but there's also some truth in it. Um, you, the question is whether or not we can still do that. Um, I, I think, you know, I don't want to make this in totally partisan terms, but I have to say that I think the future of the American democracy rests. In a large degree, in the future, of the Republican Party and whether its leaders are able to and must, muster the courage to actually speak truth to their rank and file. I do think there have been previous eras in which the United States has experienced extremism. You think of the Know Nothings in the mid 1800s, who worried about, you know, Irish immigration and the influence of the Pope. You know, or the John Birch Society a century later, which was pretty rampant in the 1950s, but was ultimately expunged from um, the Republican Party. You know, I think we probably can surmount. The current difficulties but it really it's going to be harder i think because we have to navigate this really fragmented social media environment which is just terrible for democracy because we all retreat to our own corners and echo chambers right i think there has to be some way of you know regulating or policing the big tech giants here you know that that are where these platforms are without you know hopefully infringing on free speech but it's because we need to get back to some sort of a national conversation we need to invest in you know, civic education, etc. But I also believe it's really important that political leaders are held accountable for their flirtations uh, with authoritarian authoritarianism, which I don't think we've seen recently.
0: You know, President Biden, in the aftermath, he was, at the time, he was vice president-elect, I mean, he was president-elect, excuse me, and in the aftermath of January 6th, he says, it's not who we are. But one has to wonder if that's a true statement taken into account, you know, just January 6th, that... that There has long exist. There's been this gap, this declaration between our live commitments and our actual practices. So, in some ways, I guess I'm asking you. In some ways, to for some, is January sixth a portion of who we actually are?
1: Yeah, you know, boy it remains to be seen, um, you know, whether or not this is uh, who we are or not, you know, uh, Joe Biden also said we're better than this. Um, and I think, I think it's going to help that he's going to be turning down the volume, but I think we need a couple more electoral cycles, you know, to determine whether this is who we are or not. Um, I do say that I do think that, you know, the events of January 6th, obviously, you know, put everybody into mind of, you know, looking at banana republics around the world. Um, you know, and, and we're very, very lucky that the damage wasn't greater and, and that more people, including legislators, um, weren't killed. Um, what's really extraordinary in the aftermath was to see people like Minority Leader uh, Kevin McCarthy, you know, you know, to go to <laughs> Mar-a-Lago and bend a knee to Donald Trump after he had incited this rebellion. You know, and then, you know, the, basically the, the entire Republican caucus, the vast majority not really um, – having the courage to criticize, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, for instance, for her incendiary comments and her sort of QAnon philosophy. Um, You know, on one level, you know, it's a small number of people who gathered at the Capitol and then stormed it, right? But what made it so dangerous was that it wasn't just anticipated, but that it was egged on by the sitting president of the United States. Um, And that even after it was ransacked, um, we didn't get enough politicians bringing themselves to... um, to come out against um, the president who had done it so you know i think that i'm glad uh, joe biden is turning down the temperature but i have to say um Uh, It's it's too early um, to tell whether or not we're able to turn the corner uh, on this and sort of get back to sort of the normal values, norms, and principles of what it means to be an established democracy and a stable one at that. Mm
0: -hmm. My next question I'm asking not just in the context of the United States I'll use them as example but it's it's broader to tap into the the breadth of, of your work. Can you be a functioning democracy? If if one party is obstinate, my words, and, and, the, and at best the other party can be mediocre at best. Can, I mean, can you be a functioning party when 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 one party, at least one party, just says no, we're not we're not gonna adhere to the norms, the constitutional norms.
1: You know, I don't think you can uh, not for not for long. Um, I think that um, I, you know, I think. That, uh, you know, there have been plenty of democracies that have had, you know, two um, relatively mediocre parties, you know, vying for power. I think a lot of the history of um, Great Britain has been between sort of unsatisfactory labor and unsatisfactory conservative parties with a few other small parties thrown in there. You know, and and certainly in the United States, um, there hasn't been perfection um, on either major political party, um, you know past past 100 150 years. Um, but what I don't think that you can have is one part, one of those two major parties not uh, believe in or abide by uh, the norms of democracy. I think the good news is that I don't know that that's sustainable for that party either. I think it Sort of raises the question of whether they'll, there will be new blood within that party, because it it, it can't simply also be obstructionist, or um, whether or not a splinter party emerges, and either, which has happened a couple of times in American in American politics, but not frequently, a splinter party emerges that either takes the position of that other party or forces one of those uh, that that major party to to adapt to, uh, for, for electoral survival. The one hopeful thing, as I said before, that, uh, that I see is that the demographic changes in the United States are, I believe, will be leading towards more inclusive politics and hopefully more respect for democracy along the way.
0: Mm. Stuart Patrick, uh, Council of Senior Fellow, thank you, sir, for joining me today. It's on been the a great
1: pleasure. Reality.
0: The Public roundly welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org, that's Byron B Y R O N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Public Morality at their studios. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams.